This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight and listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links. Hey, this is Mike Merles, lead developer of 4th Edition, and you're listening to The Tome. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And in this episode, number 261, we're... You know, just sort of sitting here on the couch, have some chips, maybe watch some Netflix. Yeah, that would be totally chill. Besides, uh, besides that, we're uh, talking about the audiobook of Sly Flourish's Lazy Dungeon Master. You'll notice that Tracy's not with us, but I think maybe later we can wake her up and get her to join me for the interview with Mike Shea, the author of the book, and Colby Elliott, the reader and producer of the audiobook version. However, with us tonight today, whenever you're listening to this, uh, is a veteran gamer, writer, editor of D&D novels, and so much more, Susan J. Morris. Welcome back. Thanks. Glad to be here. Uh, And while we introduce everybody, why don't we have everybody tell us a little bit about uh, your campaign and how much prep you usually do so we sort of have an idea of of where you're coming from. So, so Susan, why don't you get us started? What's your your campaign? What are you running? And uh, what's your prep like? So I do a homebrew 5e game, and this is about the third, we're into the third year of running it now. Uh, And for prep work, I tend to do a lot of prep work initially, and then um, I can use that prep work for like three games or so with only minor adjustments. So I'd say I do like three days worth of prep work uh, before my first, every three game set. Uh, And then... Uh, before each game, I do probably two hours of prep work after that, uh, and, until it's time for the new three-game set again. Very good. Uh, also joining us is Ryan Costello Jr. from the Private Sanctuary, a, a uh, what Pathfinder version of the Tome Show sort of uh, feed, if you will, network. So Ryan, thanks for joining us. I think it's been a long time since we've chatted. Uh, so why don't you say hi to everybody and tell us a little bit about your campaign and what your prep looks like. Hi, everybody. Right now I am running Rise of the Rune Lords, which is one of the Pathfinder Adventure Paths that Paizo has published. It's actually the first one. It's the first one. And it is a ridiculously supported adventure path. So I've got miniatures for it of all the NPCs. I've got face cards. I've got a Sirenscape sound set. Basically, absolutely anything I could need to run this. I can, and I'm actually finding I need to do more prep for this than any other campaign I've ever run. (laughs) I am much more of the kind of person that will... Like, my last campaign had three pages of notes for the whole campaign. And one of those was a terribly drawn map. And that is when I'm usually at my strongest. I love low prep, no prep jamming. So having to keep track of somebody else's details, having to remember where I kept the cool mini that I need right now. 
that stresses me out a lot more than freeform yeah. improvisation. So in some ways, this is right up your alley, although maybe not for your current uh, campaign, right? Yes and no. It, there was a whole section on using canned adventures with the Lazy Jam That's method. true. That's true. Yeah. Well, we'll get into some of that. But first and, and lastly but not leastly of our guests, we have mm-hmm. Allison Rossi. Allison Rossi, who does a lot of Adventures League over, over in the D.C. area. Tell us a little bit about your campaign and the prep that you do. So right now I am running Out of the Abyss. Um, I have a group of seven that I run that for. Um, so my prep generally involves, um, you know, when I start a new chapter, I read over the chapter once, maybe twice. Maybe if I completely forget what's going on, I read it a third time. Um, each week I'll probably do an hour of prep max, uh, sometimes less depending on what my players are up to and how quickly they move and how many times I've had to ask, okay, what do you guys do next? Um, and then other times I spend a little bit more time, um, sometimes for bigger NPCs, I'll make actual like table tents with a photo and a name and then little details on the back for myself. So, you know, there are some weeks where I spend an hour or less. There's other weeks where maybe I'm at three or four, depending on where we're at in the chapter. So that's generally what my prep looks like. Very good. Very good. And just to make sure everybody's clear on everything there, uh, let me give a little bit about my gaming habits. Um, I am running a campaign in fifth edition, uh, that is cobbled together from various adventures from uh, many other editions, and I've sort of squished them all together and made them all be happening at the same time. So Out of the Abyss is happening at the same time as The Rod of Seven Parts, which is sitting on top of the Freeport trilogy and all these other things, right? It's all just sort of squished together and happening. Uh, I probably spend a cup, an hour or two each week or every couple of weeks um, putting, uh, thinking through encounters and storylines and reading the adventures again to make sure I don't miss anything because there's, there's a lot of balls to juggle. Um, I used to spend a lot of time prepping, you know, maps and minis and that kind of stuff, but with the switch from 4th to 5th edition, I don't spend any time at all with that anymore. Um, and you can probably get a more in-depth look about my prep and my game if you head over to Behind the DM Screen, another Tome Show show over on the feed. So later we're going to be talking to the author as well as the reader of the audiobook. But first, I need to remind you about our sponsor, Noble Knight. I mean, we probably don't need to. You know they're great. You've heard our hilarious ads. You have nothing but love for them, and so do we. And that's why we keep going back to them for sponsorships, and they keep supporting us. Uh, Our pick for this episode is the Basic Paizo Flip Map. Uh, is recommended by the Lazy Dungeon Master book. It's a basic flip map with the grid on it, so it's easy to carry. It folds up nice and small. It's very quick to pull out and use for whatever you need and available for just over $12 over at noblenight.com. In an election year, gamers can be divided on almost every issue. Is it more important to support a small business or to have the convenience of buying your gaming products online? Do you play shiny new systems full of epic awesome or gritty older out-of-print games that make even the groggiest of nards quake with fear? In this economy, is it time to stock up on as many high-quality discounted gaming products as possible, or is it time to sell the old gaming products you aren't using anymore? We are divided on every important issue. So in 2016, you should support the store that lets you do it all. Noble Knight, a brick-and-mortar small business with a strong online presence that has new products and specializes in out-of-print, all at a price you'll love. And yes, they'll buy your old gaming products as well. Check out the incredible offerings at noblenight.com. Tell them the Tome Show sent you and help make gaming great again. 
All right, we are back and we're ready to talk about the lazy dun- the Sly Flourish's Lazy Dungeon Master audiobook. Uh, in an effort to, to, for full disclosure, uh, I got the book for free. I also got the audiobook for free. Um, I'm also mentioned in the book three or four times. I was an early reader for the book, and I'm a friend of the author. So <laughs> I have a hard time being entirely impartial, but I believe we have a bit more impartiality from the rest of you. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, I had to pay for mine. Yeah. Same here. <laughs> I, I got I, I made a new Amazon account and got it for free. Um I have met the author and I've had him as a dungeon master once. So I mean he is local, so yeah. you know. There's that at least. So you've so you've met Mike and uh yeah. and, and I mean you did, you didn't I mean you didn't you didn't pay for the book, but you got it as your free book with a new account. Yeah, so. I got it with my free book from uh uh, Audible, Audible first uh, signing up for a new Amazon account because why not have two? Yeah, very good. <laughs> so that's good. So I think we have a, a range of uh, of prep experiences, of uh, experiences with the book, of you know additions, uh, and I think that'll give us and games. I think that'll give us a, a good sort of uh, vignette of what this book is about and how useful it is or is not for what kind of people. So. First things first, uh, who wants to tell us briefly about what this book is? Ooh. I guess I can kind of uh, summarize some of the different uh, points. I kind of took notes on the different chapters as I listened to them. So the idea that I got out of the book is it's essentially a quick run through. Um, I believe it's less than, than two hours or less than three hours um, mm. as an audio book. And it kind of runs you through, um, you know, what to prepare and what not to prepare for your games. Um, and kind of the the ways that people uh, kind of shoot themselves in the foot by, by doing too much when they don't need to. So the whole, you know, keep it simple, stupid type um, mm. method of DMing. So how to go from, you know, maybe when you start, you start it six hours of prep for every single session when you really only need to be doing one or less. So that's kind of how I saw um, mm-hmm. what this was all about. I think I that's think, fair. I think one of the interesting things about it is it's also kind of differentiating between writing for publication versus writing for your own game. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of people, when they start DMing, especially if they're doing their own stuff, try and write exactly what they see when they buy an adventure instead of writing um, just what they need to run an adventure. Yeah. Next time you pitch something to Wasi, just throw a couple of five, three by five index cards at him and see what they say. <laughs> this is my story. How do you like this? Yeah. Map in the corner. It's really small, though. Very good. Uh, other thoughts? Just general. What do we think? I think that it starts out presenting it that this is for you as the dungeon master, and then slowly starts telling you how this is better for the game itself, for how the game is played, for how your players will run in this game. And that it's just overall the less prep or like the more, the, the better you use your prep time, the better it is for the game and the less frustrating it is for everybody involved. And so, so it's not that the, the advice shifts from being for the dungeon master to the player, but, but it's, it's all advice for the DM, but it's not just to make the life of the DM easier. It's also to, you know, make the game better as well. Exactly. It also uses lazy kind of tongue in cheek at the beginning. And by the end of it, you feel like you're waving the lazy flag. Mm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I felt like it gave a large number of tools, which was really useful, like actual physical things you can do in order to organize your prep work and make it fast and as easy as possible. I really liked, for instance, um, the rule of he uses like the rule of threes consistently throughout Mm -hmm. um, 
for things to focus on uh, in terms of like NPCs, in terms of adventure paths, in terms of uh, designing a whole campaign. Uh, and I think that's really good. I mean, you use it in writing too, any more than that. And it's kind of overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he, oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, another thing that I kind of noticed when listening through it in the beginning, when I first listened to it, I was, you know, making breakfast while listening to it. And, you know, he said that um, this is kind of more focused on the experience DM that's run tons and tons of campaigns. And, you know, I was listening to it like, oh, my goodness, I've been DMing for just over a year now. How much of this am I going to, you know, how, how much is going to be useful for me? And mm-hmm. I felt like this is actually really great for a new DM because there's a lot of things where it's like, oh my gosh, I wish I could have eliminated this in the beginning because my life would have been a thousand times easier if I had heard this from someone saying it to my face. Mm. Yeah, I think if he was targeting it for new DMs, the, the advice might be a little bit different because you probably don't want to tell brand new DMs, oh, just, just, just wing it and improv, you know, uh, in different spots. True. Um, so I think you, you can. There's a lot of advice that is applicable in both. And he actually wrote another book called DM Tips, which he targeted more towards newer DMs. But it's also very fourth edition focused. So I don't know if it has the same legs that this one does. Yeah, I went into it thinking that I was not going to like it, and the reason being that I'm traditionally someone who puts a lot of work into my games. That's actually why um, I asked you to come on because I yeah. knew that. <laughs> but what's interesting is that. Uh, I did like it, and I actually do most of these things exactly the same way uh, he does. Um, I mean, obviously, the one exception being that I do a homebrew world, and I do stand by that decision. However, in doing a homebrew world, it's funny because I actually do it a lot of the ways that he suggests doing your normal world. Like, you know, obviously have no uh, qualms about stealing from things you love and, like, the doing the NPC cards and things like that. Like, you know, it's... Uh, I think most of the prep work goes into designing those NPCs. And like, for instance, uh, I think I told you about one session where I had 22 NPCs involved that were important in a murder mystery. Um, Of course, I cribbed most of that from like a murder mystery, how to host a dinner party and then like redesign them heavily because it was Disney themed, I think. Um, And uh, but, you know, it still takes a lot of time to do that kind of thing. Uh, But yeah, it was it was funny how much I identified with the list. Hmm. It's interesting, yeah, because I actually thought of you specifically for this because I know that you tend to to be a little more prep heavy, and you you invest into the props and not maybe invest, but you create your craft, uh, yeah, prop, no, props I, and things. Yeah, and most of those are for. Um, I remember in the Teos uh, had said that he likes to do a lot of the like exploratory encounters and things like that, mm-hmm. like uh, things that add flavor to the world. I like most of the time I spend uh, in terms of prep aside from designing NPCs, is spent in, like, mini-games or whole new, ga- whole new elements that require rule sets that I'm adding because it's fun to design that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, and, and exploratory things, like, you know, what clues do I need in order to put together a story? So it's, it's heavy on DM, like, on uh, prep, but it's not heavy on the things that he says not to be heavy on, weirdly. Right. Uh, despite being a homebrew world. The other thing is that I allow the players to design a lot of the homebrew world as we go. Um, so, like, they'll just start talking about the history of, like, the halfling people or something, and that becomes canon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and he doesn't nec- – as much as he – as much as the book sort of harps on the idea of less prep, less prep, less prep, um, he basically – he, he kind of walks a line there, right? He's not necessarily saying less prep. He's saying – 
if you only have a certain amount of prep to do or time to do prep, uh, here's what you should maybe focus on for making a great game. And, oh, yeah. And anything else you're doing should just be because you're having fun and you enjoy doing it. Right. Which sounds Which consistent with what you're talking about, right? Yeah. That's why I liked it so much is that I actually really identify with everything here. And I'm definitely uh, like the idea of the wish list to roll uh, for players to roll on. I hadn't thought of that. And I think that's really clever. Hmm. Very good. So, Ryan, you're the one of us playing a different system. I think we're all playing 5th edition except for you. You're playing Pathfinder. How, yes, how uh, applicable does this advice tend to, to play across multiple uh, types of D&D, if you will? I cannot think of a single time that I was listening to this that I thought, well, this doesn't apply to me. Hmm. That's good. This was, like, you guys are all playing 5th edition. This was written when 4th edition was the main Yeah, the it's actually right, because it actually references D&D next in the playtest document, right? <laughs> it's true. It's actually, it, it's weird how quickly we've moved on from 4th edition, because I was almost feeling nostalgic listening to him talk about 4th edition. And it was <laughs> like, oh, yeah, back in the last year, three years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, like he even calls out a couple of times that the people he surveyed, a large percentage of them were Pathfinder players. Mm-hmm. He talks about the the Paizo flip map that you mentioned uh, in the advertisement earlier. Like he calls out things that Pathfinder and Paizo do that can help any GM, any system. So I felt very well represented by this book. And most of the time, like I was just really connecting with everything he said as a GM not, or as a dungeon master. We... We can't use that term as Pathfinder players. <laughs> Unless you're willing to just call Pathfinder another, another version of D&D. I am perfectly happy considering <laughs> Pathfinder another version of D&D. Yeah, I think so. Very good. So the book was also written several years ago. And like you said, it was written sort of in the, the fourth edition era. Um, in fact, I listened to my own. Uh, I'm in that DM sort of interview um, appendix. And I listened to my own interview and I'm like, oh, like, all of my answers are different now because I'm not <laughs> playing the same game, you know? I kind of yeah. wish I could go back and do it again. Um, so it's been a few years, and, and editions have changed, and, and things are different. Uh, does the advice, by and large, hold up? Yes. I would say this is universally applicable. Probably, had this been written when first edition was out, it would still apply. It's just that he's got so much knowledge and wisdom gained from the years. And also, he applies other people's wisdom. Like, he references a lot of other advice books Hmm. uh he references the gnome stew blog he references your podcast like most of the time he proves that he knows how to turn a phrase and how to really convey an idea but kind of like his dming style he also knows to find when someone else has done it and just take their work and make sure he gives the proper credit but then Mm -hmm. just applies it how he needs it to how he needs to yeah he cites the what chris perkins and mike merles a few times as well and and some of the things that they've said on on the watsi site and yeah, he clearly is, like, I believe that he just knew this stuff for the most part offhand. Like, he didn't go researching to find the information he needed. He probably spends a lot of time just researching how to Dungeon Master, what the game is all about, how to run the game properly, and he is applying that knowledge very well. Yeah, and he really likes data, and <laughs> he, he tracks the minutes of his day and makes spreadsheets. He's that kind of guy, <laughs> so. Very good. Uh so any, any areas where you heard advice and you thought, well, you know, this is, this is maybe good sort of generally, but maybe not something I'll specifically follow? Is anybody picking up all their three-by-five three by uh, cards and, you know, organizing their games entirely that way now? Or 
Uh, is it pick and choose and, and listen to the general message sort of thing? I, th- I think you need to pick and choose for your style. Like, mm-hmm. I definitely like the idea of three by five cards for monsters or NPCs or things like that. But I really like having my, I have my own style of organization for doing um, my adventure itself. Uh, so I can keep track of it through time. Mm-hmm. And I'm certainly not going to mess with that now uh, since it's been <laughs> going on for a while. So I think it's it's pick out the good things that you can add and, you know, acknowledge that you might use something else in the future or might not. There were yeah, definitely I, times when I was when I saw myself in what he was talking about. Actually, that was for most of the way through it. And then if he ever came to a point where he did something differently from how I do it, I had to ask myself if there was a reason I did it my way mm-hmm. or if not then I would really give him extra focus and be like, okay, so what is he saying? How do I think that'll apply to my game? And should I give it a try? Mm-hmm. Allison, you were about to say something? Yeah, for me, uh, it's definitely, again, pick and choose what I think works best for me. Um, I don't think I will be using 3 by 5 cards uh, for my notes, but the general idea is already there. Uh, when it comes to my notable NPCs, as I mentioned before, you know, I like to make table tents so that there's, you know, an actual photo of the person, whether I, you know, take it from the book or, you know, find a random photo I think represents the person, along with their name, maybe their faction, and then I have my notes for them on the other side. I like doing things that way that way you know i can keep them in i have a little like card organizer so i just pull them out when i need that batch of npcs so my players can you know quickly recall who they are they're all adults they all have full-time jobs they don't really have the time to sit there and remember you know what npcs they met in the last town so i make it you know easier for them to remember Mm -hmm. things um but the general idea of, you know, where are we beginning and what are the three areas that that it may lead you to is really great because I'm trying to, as a new DM, move away from, okay, uh, things are sort of on the rails because I'm still unsure of what I'm doing to, okay, if you don't want to go to this area, well, your other option is this area or this area. So there's different ways they can go so they don't feel like they're confined to doing one thing and one thing only each session. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of advice and, and we all sort of pick and choose. I, I'm, I myself don't necessarily do the three by five cards, although I did try it after the first time I read the book um, and it worked fine. I've converted the same concept into basically I, I have my entire session sort of sketched out on one page um, on, a, on a word processing document and I'll have a table with things like Here's a, here's just a, a smattering of locations. Here's a couple of story items that might happen. Here's some NPCs, and here's some monsters you might consider that are sort of level appropriate for these encounters or whatever, right? And so that's sort of my prep, and then I might make some bullet points underneath it. Um, and so it's it's basically the same concept, but instead of a three by five card, I I have you know a column and a table uh, for reference. But there's a lot of advice in here you know, between three by five cards and, and finding inspiration and you know, remembering, you know, know, starting your prep with knowing the beginning and the end and filling in from there. Um, so what specific piece of advice did you think was the most useful? Who wants to go first? I loved his metaphor about pool, about billiards, and okay. how the, like, you know, the, the player is the player, the character is the cue and the action they're taking is the cue ball and it's hitting whatever they're aiming for, but then it's affecting the rest of the world. And it's such a visual uh, example. And it, it was, uh, I've never heard it explained that way, but it was such an amazing way of thinking about like actions and reactions mm-hmm. and how you as the gym maybe have set up, maybe you even just set up the initial 
board. And then since then, where the balls lie is completely determined by what the players have done and how they've hit that cue ball. Yeah, and my favorite part of that metaphor is that is that you know the idea is that the players do something and it knocks the ball all the way across the table and it sits there and knocks around and things balls are, are bouncing around in random places and eventually one of them might come knocking back into into the, where you started right and, right and so the players uh, in that metaphor they they took an action and then a session or two down the road or maybe by the end of the session um, whatever they did comes back and affects them again and they can sort of piece it back from their original action and try to figure out what they did that, that made that occur. And likewise, let's say they're trying to sink the sixth ball and they sink it and accidentally sink the seventh ball as well. Sometimes they will cause, you know, like sometimes they will resolve something in a story that makes another part of the story that you've prepped useless. And you basically have to treat it like a pocketed ball yep. and move on. You may have the coolest NPC that you've designed in your whole campaign in section seven, but there's no reason for them to go to section seven. They sank it when they were sinking section six. Yep. Though so I think that like that then comes in his reskinning bit, like reskin that NPC and use it. That's mm-hmm. true. Yeah, you can just swap out the seven and the nine ball. Or the bit about how uh, if you uh, planned on them going to the wizard's tower to encounter the wizard, instead just have the wizard walking down the road going grocery shopping and, and use it a different way, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, other favorite advice um i guess you know to go off a couple quotes that that he had in there uh they're not quite exact quotes but um you know only 10 percent of what you actually prep will come into play uh the dangers of over preparation means that no plan survives the players um things like that you know they really really uh ring true to me because sometimes you prep and you prep and you prep and absolutely nothing that you prep for is what your your players do, um, and you know sometimes you over prep to death, and it just all goes out the window because they completely destroy your plans. Um, you know there was a a session of um, I think it was Rise of Tiamat um, or Horde of the Dragon Queen where there was a floating castle. So it was uh, it was Horde of the Dragon Queen. So there's a floating castle. There's a bunch of orcs. One of my players flew above the castle and just you know lightning stormed all the orcs until they all died. And I was like, well, there goes every single potential encounter that you would have, you know, had a lot of trouble with because you just zapped them from afar. So I had to completely, you know, on the fly, reprep how was I going to go about this and make this challenging for them. Um, so you never know what your players are going to do or how they're going to outsmart you because you're never going to think of every single possibility that they're going to do uh, with their spells or whatever it may be, and just kind of blast your story out of the water. So, you know, people who spend hours and hours and hours, it might be for no reason. And then you don't want to get upset at your players for being creative because they, you know, surpassed your your NPCs or destroyed them in two rounds and you didn't expect that. Yeah, something similar to that just happened in my Rise of the Rune Lords game where there's one NPC who's got the ability to dimension door anywhere in the dungeon, and he's supposed to just show up constantly harass the the party and then leave and do this for the entire dungeon but the second time he shows up there were like three lucky 20s and some really good tactics (laughs) and they killed him and then every encounter after that was just a wash (sighs) and i could have found a way of just being like no no this guy survives because the tactics say he survives and will be cooler (laughs) right but instead it becomes the thing that years from now they'll be like hey remember when we killed that guy that's supposed to torture us for the whole dungeon. We killed him in like the second encounter. We were so awesome. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Now, does that make the rest of the dungeon irrelevant? A little bit. We kind of fast forwarded through. Yeah, as I say, like, so I mean, after two or three encounters, that it was just like, man, we are just destroying everything. It's not even worth rolling for initiative. So well, we stopped rolling for initiative. Wait until he thinks of something else. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> no, I let them have it. I let them know that this dungeon is theirs. They you owned it because they killed that guy. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Let him win. Absolutely. Uh, Susan, favorite, yeah, think- favorite advice? I think that my favorite advice, I have to think about this because I really like a lot of the advice in here, um, but I think my absolute favorite is focusing on what the NPCs have been up to, what they want, mm. uh, and really developing, like, thinking about them as a person, like, that has a voice and uh, opinions of their own. They're not just there to bounce the characters off of. And the reason is that that way you don't have to design everything they do because you know what they would have done. They're, you know, a fleshed out character. Mm-hmm. And I think that that really does create the most tension, the most interesting scenes, the most new opportunities in any adventure I've run. Yeah, I think that's, that's good. If mine, uh, my pick would be if there's anything, and it's not necessarily the best advice um, that, I, that I found because it's not, certainly not new advice to me, um, but it's something I need to work on that this book helps me think of and, and reminds me of, and that's finding inspiration for when I'm playing those NPCs, right? Um, right. Thinking about those TV shows and those characters, or those books that you've read, or those that movie you watched, and you know, playing your your NPCs like Tony Stark or like you know the you know Bob from Sons of Anarchy or whatever, right? Pick out an, uh, somebody who you know that you can consistently sort of do your imitation of, and end up creating something completely different because it's not probably not yes. a good imitation, you know? <laughs> yeah, I have. That's actually one of the things that takes me the most time. I have a huge list of characters that I know I can imitate. Um, but you don't want to reuse them too often because they, if the characters, if the player is really attached to them, then you can't use that voice again for someone else or that mm. personality, yeah. at least without it being recognizable. Yeah, I think I only have a handful anyway, so I don't know how well I do with that. So That's why I really want to get that book you mentioned, uh, Masks, was it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Masks, yeah, from, uh, uh, it's the Gnomes 2 guys, I forget yeah, the name Engine, of the publishing, publishing There you go. Yeah, that sounds like it'll be like a lifesaver. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've I've read a few of their things. I don't think I've picked that one up though. Uh, so we've talked about what the advice we liked. Is there any advice that you think um, you could have done without? Like this is just something to ignore, or was it all just you know at least thought worthy? Well, for me, the one thing was the advice where he specifically said, "Don't do homebrew. <laughs> right. Choose a setting, <laughs> and uh, for obvious reasons. And the main reason is that I think that." If you're like me, that's one of the things you get the most joy out of. Mm. Is, and I do think that that's a part that you're actually co-writing with the players, as long as you're flexible about it, right? Like, don't put things in stone, because then you're going to be disappointed. Um, and so that's the one thing that, I mean, I think that it's worth going over the value of established settings. But for me, I get bored easily. And if I know a setting really well, like, say, if you've worked on it for 12 years. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, but, but you and your players know the realms so well. <laughs> I know. And weirdly, like, that makes me really want to step outside it. And so, like, what I did is, like, my world has twists on a lot of the stuff there. I mean, again, you steal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, well, what if, you know, for instance, um, being a tiefling was a curse and it could be removed and also you could get it. And so you could get it as a curse to, mm-hmm. say, disguise your identity if you didn't want to be found or something. Like, how does that change the game? Um, so I think it's that that's the one thing I would say that there's a lot of value into creating your own world if that's something you enjoy mm-hmm. any other advice that you would uh, ignore 
Now, I have a critique, but it's not based on the quality of the advice. Okay. And I'm not sure if we're going to get to it or not. It's basically about the audiobook format. Okay. I, I was going to talk about that next, so go ahead. Well, I'll wait my turn. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> Allison, did you have any advice that you would ignore? Um, I mean, not anything that really sticks out in my mind. I think way more of it was useful for me than not. Um, mm-hmm. I felt like some things did get a little bit repetitive, but not to the point where, you know, I was annoyed by it or, or mm-hmm. didn't think it was, you know, the worst advice ever. Um, so I really don't have anything bad to say personally um perhaps it's just because i'm a fairly new dm or perhaps it's just because i think just in general it was good advice Mm. oh i do have one thing to add if you don't mind i think that what's interesting is for doing your own homebrew world all the advice in there is actually you can just use to design your own world in a really simple and easy low prep way low prep uh setting creation right yeah but you can use all the stuff he has there to do mm-hmm. that, like if you just think of it in terms of designing your setting. Yeah, I've done a lot of that with my own setting right now. I'm doing a a, a post apocalyptic fantasy Earth. So I've taken awesome. I've taken Earth and I've I've drawn the map and I've changed a bunch of things and there's big you know weird craters here and whatever. But I'm like, okay, so here's where we're starting. And I had the players tell me what is it? How does it work? What's the government? What, you know, do all that. Tell me all this information. What's, a, what's across the ocean? I don't know. When we get there, I'll ask you then, you know, sort of stuff. So, <laughs> so it's, it's the collaborative. It's homebrew, but it, it's low prep. I don't, you know, the most prep I put into my setting has been basically taking what they've told me and putting it into some sort of document so we can reference it and drawing the maps because I was having fun making prop maps. Well, like, I really like using his three-word rule. So, like, if I have a new town, I'll say, like, um, perfume industry... Uh, pirates and uh, celebration and then I'll make a town based around that Mm -hmm. and because you have those themes and you know what it should feel like you don't have to design everything one by one but it still has a super unique feel Mm -hmm. yeah that's actually really good and so it's the exact same thing he's talking about for doing for NPCs or adventures or your campaign in general Mm -hmm. yeah those are those are those are good points especially with with the homebrew and and you know, some people make things harder for themselves than they have to. And they want to do literally everything from scratch with no help from any outside sources. And it's, you know, why waste all that time when there's all these materials where you can get your inspiration from? You know, don't torture yourself by saying, I need to make every single map on my own and every NPC on oh, my own. Like, <laughs> you know, you'll you'll be there for hours and hours, and then if your players ignore it or, you know, kill that NPC on site or, you know, blow up the town, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to be upset because you spent so much time on it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So you either have to figure out not to do that prep and which prep you need to do or be okay with throwing your baby out, you know? Yeah. They, yeah. they didn't do it. They ruined it. They <laughs> broke gonna it. They're going to be out with the bathwater there. I do that's think right. that's super important. Being willing to throw things out or reskin yeah. them. Mm-hmm. I reskin everything. Yeah, but you're an editor. You have to say that. <laughs> well, no, I seriously think it's one of the best things you can do for yourself is being willing to let the players take the lead and just throw things out. Yeah. No. You will reuse them. You make a file of things. Eventually, you'll reuse it. Absolutely. And if I and if I drew out a map for this room and they never go to that room and it's attached to this other map and I you know I can't save it then then that's fine I I had uh, you know a nice sort of zen moment of of drawing my maps and and focusing on that and right now I need to be focused on making the game fun and not worry about that so 
the only advice I heard that, that I can think of that I really sort of wouldn't follow necessarily anymore is, um, and, and it sort of, for me, solidifies the book as being written in the fourth edition era, uh, is the bit about um, the monster cards with their defenses visible to the players. Uh, mm. it's, it's, a, it's a tactic that's good for speeding combat, which, and it was essential in the 4th edition era, and I did it myself, and I find my, that I don't need to do it at all anymore. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it's fine advice. It might shave a minute or two off of your 5th edition or even your 3rd edition uh, or Pathfinder uh, combat, but there's, there's some value in the surprise and them having to learn things and figure things out and not just being told, here's, here's the AC of this creature. So that's that's the one piece of advice I don't think I would follow anymore. That's a, I've actually that's tried a that. Hmm? That's, a, that's a good point. I actually had a note on that, and I completely forgot about it. You know, uh, when he was talking about uh, delegation and, you know, delegating initiative or tracking monster damage or revealing uh, mm. DCs for things, um, that's not personally something I like doing with my players at all, um, despite combat taking forever because there's, there's seven of them as well as whatever monsters are up against. Um, but, you know, I have my table tents for their names and, you know, just uh, flat ones for monsters, and I control stuff behind the, the uh, DM screen because, you know, they shouldn't be worrying about you know, just the DC. It should be about having fun on the other side of the screen while I kind of take care of them, the little details, um, just so they can continue to have a good time and we can keep things flowing. I will defend delegation. I do a lot of delegation at my table. Initiative was one of the ones that was hardest for me to give up because I did feel like not knowing exactly what was going to happen when added to like the cinematics of it. But as soon as I did, I found I was so freed up as a GM to worry about the other details and from the player's point of view they tended to memorize as quickly as possible who was going when so that they could set up their tactics so it didn't really affect things from their side of the table see i yeah. I, I track initiative on but i use three by five cards and i put the names of everything and i fold it over the, the top edge of my dm screen so everybody can just see the initiative order and we move along that way i use a whiteboard um and I, I, I've tried it both ways with showing them how much. Right now I show them the initiative order, but I don't show them the ACs uh, or hit points. But I've done it both ways before, and I think it really depends on the players. I've had players mm. that really get energy off of seeing it and get excited and start like getting into new tactics. And I've had players that will get so involved in the tactics they forget the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it, you just have to look at your group and figure out what works for them. For my current group, um, I like to not show them hit points because that way fear is real. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, but AC, they figure out very quickly. And initiative <clears throat> order, they also figure out very quickly. See, I think my players could figure out AC very quickly, but they typically don't bother. Yeah. <laughs> they just keep telling me, 17, well, it, it, it hit last time, so I think it'll hit this time too, <laughs> you know, so. Very good. Um then I wanted to talk about audio versus print. So uh, the book book has been out for a few years now. Uh, the audio book, however, is the new thing that brought us to it for this episode. So let's talk about the audio versus print. Was there any point that you're listening to it and you wish you had the, the physical book or an ebook version of it or what have you? Uh, what do you thought? And I think Ryan wants to start. Yeah, most of the time that I was listening to it, I wish I had the, the print version. Uh, there were times where there was good advice and I was like, I should write that down. And I was like, if I had a book yeah, or mark the page or yeah, <laughs> I would not need to write it down. The words would be there. But what happened most of the time is that he would give a really good piece of advice 
and I would get started thinking about how I would apply it, how it applies to my group. Mm. And the book moves so quickly that I'm missing huge chunks of other ideas that I'm either skipping going back or as soon as he says something that I like, I have to remember to pause so that I could just get my thoughts done and be ready to go back into it. And that's not really how I want an audiobook. That's more how I read, where mm. I'll put a book down and just contemplate. So it being an audiobook, like there was very little advantage to that for me. Like the the narrator was great, the the advice was great, but the format just was not it was it was the opposite of what I wanted basically. Okay. Other experiences? So for me, the beginning of the book worked great uh, as audio. I typed at the same time, and I did pause a few times to take longer notes or to collect my own thoughts on the matter. Um, the part that didn't work so well for me was in the appendix, right. the tables and such. Uh, I really wished I had, and I, I think I'd want an actual physical copy so that you can flip through easily. Um, it's really weird to hear a long list and then to remember what you were talking about in the beginning. And you you say that, and I can tell you that in the actual uh, book book, um, there are more longer lists, and they just couldn't figure out how to translate that into the audio. He talks about it a little bit in the interview. They couldn't figure out how to translate that into the audio, so they just ended up cutting a lot of those sidebars. It's just long lists of things that you could use as inspiration. Oh, well, yeah. See, I was the, really interested in that. Yeah. There is also the PDF you can download, mm -hmm. which I've never seen a PDF to accompany an audio book before. But I've got like charts and charts of things here on my screen, which is not entirely useful when I'm reading the book, but it's good to reference back to, I suppose, sure. after the fact. Allison, what was your thought? Audio versus print? So I was perfectly fine with it being an audiobook because I could listen to it. You know, I have about a 30 minute commute. So, you know, I listened to it a bit while I was driving to or from work. So you finished it uh, in one day. Well, I listened to <laughs> it like twice, two two or three times mm -hmm. kind of, uh, you know, while doing other things, hence why I listened to it so much. Um, so I most of the time I did have, you know, my computer in front of me so I could take notes as I was listening. Um, but it was weird with the appendix where it was like, oh, well, he's referencing appendix B or C or whatever, but I don't really have that in front of me right now, or oh, I have to go sign into Amazon to get onto Audible mm -hmm. to download the PDF because I forgot to do so. Um, so that was a little bit of a hassle, but I mean, at least there was a PDF to accompany it, and you can download it, and you can use those charts then. So, you mm -hmm. know, maybe I'll steal a couple things from there, mm -hmm. make so, my prep easier. And I think that's fair. I also, I, I, I also found because it's so easy and quick to consume as an audiobook that that the fact that as you said Ryan like I couldn't like set it down and and or jot some things in or or whatever um easily it's almost made up for because I can just go back and listen to the whole like I listened to the whole book twice and each time I finished it in like a day day and a half right uh, now I also am used to listening I listen to a lot of audiobooks and podcasts and whatever and I listen to everything at like double speed so I this two and a half hour audiobook, half of which is the, the appendixes, um, you know, I, I flow, fly through in like an hour and change, right? Yeah, I've been debating how I feel about it being such a short book on top of that uh -huh. because it's, it's like it's densely packed. There's a lot of great ideas in here, mm -hmm. but like there's what, 25 chapters or so? Each one could have been a half hour, 45 minute podcast. So the fact that he flies through these all of these points in two and a half hours it just it feels like there could have been so much more focus on each individual point 
Oh, so you think he could have gone longer and, and gotten into more detail with stuff? I think that's one way it could have gone, yeah. Okay. I would have been interested in seeing more as well. Okay. I think that this was a really good, like, this is the basis of how you should DM if you want to do this style. But yeah, I'd love to see more. Uh, the examples were always really engaging. Very and, good. Um, well, I mean, if 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 one of your biggest concerns or complaints is that you wanted more of it, right? That's that's pretty pretty good praise. It is good praise, but then I don't know if I would recommend it for its price based on the value. Uh, based on what you currently presented. have, yeah. Okay. Personally, I think it's the lazy DM, and I was completely okay with it being short because you know, <laughs> if I'm going to be as lazy as humanly possible about doing my prep, I want something short and sweet and and to the point. I don't I don't need more than than two hours. That was I thought it was good as it was and allowed me to lazily listen to it while I did other <laughs> there you things. Go. Okay. And, and I know he's constantly working on other projects. He has a, a Kickstarter that was successful several months back, and he's working on fulfilling all of that now for uh, fantastic locations because he's basically saying, so what do DMs spend a lot of time prepping? Locations is one of them. How about if I just make a giant book of ver- random locations and then people don't have to prep that anymore? And, um, so he's, he's going to have that, I think, done in a couple of months. Uh, and so I think he's always looking for new projects. So maybe he'll come back and do some more lazy DM advice for us. <laughs> the lazier DM. <laughs> the, the laziest. This DM. one's only thirty minutes, and he yeah. talks really <laughs> <best>. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, any last thoughts before we head off to the interview? Going once, going twice. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and toss it off to myself and Tracy, who are talking to Mike Shea, the author, and Colby Elliott, the reader. And we are here now with Mike Shea, who doesn't really need an introduction on the Tome Show feed, but uh, just in case this is the first time you're listening, Mike, who are you? Oh, I'm Mike. <laughs> I don't know how to, who is anybody, really? Who, oh, you're going to get Down. existential with us. Yeah. Uh, I am uh, the guy who writes for Sly Flourish. Uh, and I'm the author of the Lazy Dungeon Master. There you go. And and a bunch of other things. And a co-host on the behind the DM and a screen. co-host on the behind the DM screen. All right, here on this podcast feed. Uh, and also with us is Colby Elliott. How Colby, are you? You are new to us here. I am. Yes. So tell us a little bit about who you are before we start asking the hard hitting questions about Lazy Dungeon Mastering. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm an audiobook narrator, and I. I specialize in what uh, I like to call geek lit or nerd lit. Um, I do audiobooks about gaming, about computer hacking, about comic books, science fiction, fantasy, basically everything that I love. And uh, if it's something that I'm passionate about, I, I sort of direct my, my laser beam at that, and that's what I go and I narrate. And I typically go out and I find authors that I find very interesting and, and make sure that it's something that almost everything I do is a, is a passion project. So, And you can make a career out of passion projects. That's awesome. Well, yeah. Working on it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's always, a, it's always a, a work in progress, right? You bet. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, I, I've he- often heard it's not necessary to make your creativity support you completely. I mean, for example, like Herman Melville was writing Moby Dick when he was a patent clerk, right? So it's okay to have one or two sidelines going on as there long as the creative process is also kind of feeding your soul and making your life better. Very so. good. And we're going to get into a little bit of your story about uh, how this whole project came about. But before we do that, we should get some backstory. So, Mike, 
What is the Lazy, Lazy Dungeon Master book all about? Uh, the Lazy Dungeon Master is built on uh, a a hypothesis in a hypothesis in two parts. Um, part one is that you don't really have to prep nearly as much as you think you do to run a good uh, role playing game, and uh, part two is that your game may actually be better uh, the less you 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 prep. Okay, and, so and oh, go ahead. So that's so that's kind of the core idea of the book, and then it's you know a lot of the book gets into well what what exactly should you prep and and what should you you know where where are the stumbling blocks? What are the things that we often spend a lot of time on that actually really aren't beneficial at all, and in some cases can be detrimental. Um, and then you know, but what what sort of work can we do up front that will kind of uh, uh, make our lives easy and make our games better? Okay, and and this book came out. Um... You did some print, uh, a small print run, and, and um, a pretty hefty PDF run, right? I mean, uh, run, right? It's yeah, yeah I, PDFs say, I don't know there. what I don't know what this run is that you talk of. Uh, <laughs> it, it was print on demand from the get go. Oh, okay, um, so I just always, I just remember yeah. you running around Gen Con and giving out copies that people had yeah, bought or something. Yeah, that was back when I did things like that. Okay, and, uh, <laughs> I, I can't tell you how much of a pain in the ass that is to do. So I, I don't do that. Anymore. Okay. Um, because you know, like everybody wants it, but they're always on the far side of the convention center. It was it was very it. much a not lazy dungeon master sort. Yeah, of it was really hard work for a <laughs> yeah. lazy dungeon master. Um, but yeah, it's so it's been in print and in PDF, um, and also on Amazon as a as a Kindle book um, since it came out, and, and, uh, and that actually that? turned out to be pretty useful because there's not a lot of stuff that's on the Kindle book for this topic. There you go. When did it come out? I don't remember. Um, 2013 <laughs> or something like that. Okay, so it's been it's been two two three years. Yeah, it's it's been a little while. Okay. Yeah. So, so then I think that takes us well into, you know, three years later, suddenly an audiobook is coming out or has come out. Um, between the two of you, why don't we start with Colby? Uh, sure. How did that happen? I read the book. I absolutely loved it and was moving to a different part of the country where one of the first things that I wanted to do to sort of make myself feel at home was I wanted to start finding my people, my, my gaming group. And once I found them, I really wanted to have something to contribute. And I was looking for new projects, and I really just I love the book. I love its I loved its message. And I said to myself, you know, couldn't the world need? I mean, the world needs more good dungeon masters. And if, to make the process a little more simple, just really spoke to me. It was something I it's like I really need to do this because it's a really cool idea. And imagine if it gets that you know, 10 or 15 more people, you know, in each, in each couple of groups gets them to take that step forward and, and try game mastering or, and just gives them those tools to do it, you know? Very good. And so, so what was that process like then when you, you just, you found a book, you love the book. Um, uh-huh. How does that suddenly mean now there's an audio book on Audible? Um, I wrote to Mike and I said, Mike, I like this book. And I recorded probably the first five, 10 minutes and gave him like a, a polished version of what it could sound like. Yeah. That was, that was probably the most effective marketing I'd ever seen. Oh, um, <laughs> you know, cause it was like, it's one thing to kind of get a note from somebody saying, Hey, I'd like to do an audiobook of your book. And it's something else to actually hear somebody doing it, which was like equally, sorry to interrupt you. Uh, no e- equally, I do it all the time. Um, uh, I'm not really that sorry. And <laughs> you know, it's, it's equally, um, you know, awesome to hear and terrifying at the same time. 
Um, because it's like, you know, I mean, I've, I've lived with imposter syndrome my entire life. So to hear words that I wrote coming out of a professional's voice, you know, in, in, at, at a quality level of that, maybe like, oh my God, like this is going to shine a giant spotlight on the fact that I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> um, but that's yeah. never stopped me before. So. <laughs> I did find it very interesting knowing you so well and then hearing someone else say yeah, your words right. was, mm. was interesting. Yeah, it really is. It was a, it was a totally different experience. And I, you know, one of the things it's, I, I loved that it came across with the other experts too. So it's, it's like you have this panel of dungeon masters who are all just wanting to guide you and help you out. Um, that was another thing that really appealed to me too. And, you know, you hear, and, and it's across the board too. It's, you know, male dungeon masters, female dungeon masters, and just a, a, a wide cross section of, of really interesting people. Yeah, including, including both Tracy and Jeff. Yeah. It's, which is actually kind of, uh, I've, I've now listened to the book twice and I've also read the book twice. Uh, although one of those was an early version, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and now I go back and, I, and when I listen to it and I listen to that, my part, I'm like, oh, I do things so much differently now. <laughs> like, I want to go back and redo it. You know? I should, I should do a new book. You should. And <laughs> actually, that's what. That, how do we do it now? <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's that's actually uh, one of the things I wanted to ask. Is is it's been a few years. How well does it hold up? You know, there's a new edition out, which you were kind of talking about in playtest at the time. Um, but it's it's kind of a whole new new world right now. Um, how well do you think the book holds up? Uh, I think it holds up, uh, you know, so I, I, it's funny because the, the book that I'm more worried about is, is, uh, Sly Flourish's Dungeon Master Tips, mm. um, because that was written so heavily around 4E. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I went back and, you know, read that now a couple times thinking like, what, what, what should I do with this? Um, and I'm probably, I, I think I'm probably using a metric for that. That's not great, which is it's still selling and I haven't gotten any complaints. Um, you know, like I would, I would wait until people are like, you know, I just spent money on your crappy book and it's all about 4E. What the hell? But I, I read through it and I'm like, well, you know, there's still a lot of stuff in here that's really useful for any, you know, any game. And I, and Lazy Dungeon Master, I specifically wrote that way. Like I, I had been playing Pathfinder and I'd played 4E and, you know, Next had been out by that point. So I, I, you know, I had, I had designed it to try to be universal for lots of different RPGs. Um, so I, I mean, you know, I'll let everybody else judge on whether or not it's useful for them. <laughs> I used it personally. I used it as my roadmap when I was running my Feng Shui game because I run, I run, um, Feng Shui for my friends down in, in Worcester. And, um, it was, it was great. I had my cards, had it all set up and it was a, a wonderful roadmap. You guys had a great time and that yeah, was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's, there's certainly like, I listened to some of the interviews like in my own specifically and I'm like. Like clearly, I was giving four E base advice because that's what yeah, I was playing right. at the time. You're all really heavily into it at that right point. now. The advice I, I give yeah. would be very different because that's right. not, the needs of my current game aren't the same as as the previous yeah. one. Yeah. Um, however, I also like I, I think back to our le- most recent discussions on behind the DM screen, and I talked about you know the way I've sort of organized and I have the these tables that I fill out to do my game prep, uh, and I'm like, well, I'm not using note cards, but it's kind of the same concept just on a table on one sheet of paper. Sure. You know, and so I'm, I'm, I'm without even trying to consciously continue to use the ideas, I'm still kind of using the same ideas. So, yeah. When, and you have your, you know, your Excel spreadsheet with the 400 NPCs from Temple of Elemental Evil. <laughs> I haven't done that in forever. Oh, yeah. That's well, and one of the things that I was thinking about and re-listening to it now, years, a few years later, uh, is how, 
you you did that surveys of DMs a lot too, and which was something that during the production of fifth edition was something that they relied heavily on as well. And I thought that was really uh, interesting thing to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never really thought about the fact that that's that's also. I mean, obviously, you know, I think the I don't remember exactly how many respondents I got. It was it was a fair number, but it wasn't like one hundred and fifty thousand. No. <laughs> right? Know? Yeah, like, they have a lot more data than I did. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. That and I think that's kind of the new. You know, I'm not, you know, I, I'm I'm a big believer that like we haven't figured out all the ways the internet is changing our lives yet. And one way is that now we actually have that kind of access. Like we mm-hmm. could, you know, I'd love to run another survey. Um, it would be, I think, a lot of fun to, uh, uh, you know, if I if we can think up the right questions that we'd want to that we'd want to know from people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I even I even how things changed because you talked about the survey at, uh, at one point in the book, uh, and I was as I was listening to it recently. Um, it occurred to me, oh, you're, you kind of – and you frame it l- a little bit like an academic, right? And I'm in that world right now because I'm in a PhD program. So, so I'm used to reading that kind of stuff. But there is, a, there is a methodology wherein you introduce, here's my methods of what I did and here mm-hmm. are the weaknesses of them. And you, and you lay that out in this as well. Like here's the survey that I gave and here's mm-hmm. why the survey is weak, right? Here, here's why you know, we have to take it a l- with a little bit of a grain of salt. Right. Uh, which which is honest and I think and I think fair, um, but also like if you you could update because I think people, um, you know, different respondents, different cross section, different samples, but you also have uh, the changes of time and a new edition and all that. That some of the the ideas might be a little different. Yeah, yeah. There was actually um, kind of at the time I'd been reading sort of some some businessy books and some kind of BSE self help books, and one thing I noticed about a lot of the BSE self help books. Um, is that they tend not to have any data to back up the things that they're promoting, mm-hmm. uh, which is starting to change these days. But back then, you'd read books like, uh, you know, Getting Things Done or uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and they're all filled with great advice that has no scientific ba- basis whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, then there were some other books. It was a book by an author called of called Jim Collins. It's sort of self help for big business called um, Good to Great. And um, it had really interesting ideas in there. But one thing I really liked about that book was that they actually, you know, took a lot of data from companies to determine why things were the way they were. And, of course, one thing that was really interesting is they talked about how great Circuit City was as a business. Uh, <laughs> that and that didn't turn out like they were. And guess what? They, they made another book. <laughs> and yeah. sold, sold that one, too, about why that turned out to be the case. Called so why the Mighty Fall that, or How uh, the Mighty Fall. Don't you think that one of the reasons why maybe some of the, the BSE self-help books that rely on the anecdotal evidence are so appealing to, you know, especially people like us is because, I mean, we, we love the stories. The ro- I mean, the role-playing yeah, game. Right, right. Story. And so the anecdotal evidence sometimes speaks even a bit louder than the statistical evidence, depending yeah. on, so. Yeah, well, and, that's, and that was actually sort of my intent of, and I just, I, I just pulled it up, that we had 800, you know, 800 respondents to the DM survey back in 2012. That was the middle of the year in 2012. Uh, but then I kind of hand-selected, hmm. you know, a, a dozen or so DMs that I knew personally and that I, I, you know, I know are good DMs and, and kind of ask them those, those, the, the questions that get more into the story of how people do it. In, in the area of professional research, we call that qualitative and quantitative methods. You did a mm-hmm. mixed method study. Fancy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. Yes. Well, and, and I wonder, like, how much of the advice really significantly changed as a result? Or was it more of a confirmation and it was important to you to sort of be intellectually honest about about having something to back up your ideas? Uh, to, to be perfectly honest, uh, 
I pro I started I think I started with the hypothesis. I was already kind of thinking about this idea before I had done the survey. So and and I don't know that the survey or the interviews directly all align with the ideas that are in the lazy dungeon master. You know, it wasn't I mean, I think a a a, a more pure way to do it would be do a bunch of interviews with a bunch of DMs, do a bunch of surveys and, and get a lot of data, and then from that sort of build a hypothesis about what makes great DMing and what what makes DMing, you know, harder or or not not as rewarding, and then kind of focus on that. Mm -hmm. And instead I kind of said, like, I think this is the way, I think there's something to this idea. You know, let me go do some research. Uh, some of this backs my my my. <laughs> some of it doesn't, but at least it's all there. Like I don't think I, I you know I don't hide anything. There wasn't right. there weren't interviews that I got that contradicted it, and I and I threw them out. Right. Um, no, and that's obvious, right? Because some of that. the interviews do contradict it. Right, and I, that's what I thought. And and to me, that and that I think you know, and I got into this when I when I when I wrote it. I remember, you know, my 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 poor wife Michelle, who has to hear all the nonsense. <laughs> you know, well before any of it gets written anywhere. Um, you know, one of the things that I was really careful of in this book, um, and I don't remember if I'd ever really received complaints about it before, but I certainly felt this way, that I did not want it to be, this is the way you should run your RPG. You know, that this is it, right? We found, we've done all this research and we've done this, and this is how you should run your game. It was, here's an idea. You know, here's, here's a way that might be an interesting way to run our RPGs. And maybe it sucks, Right. Maybe it turns out this isn't useful at all. And, you know, we should all go back to doing heavy prep and world building and building our own monsters. Um, you know, so I, I really tried not to make it um, sort of a, a, you know, a pound, a fist pounding. This is the way life is these days. You know, it's it, it's supposed to be kind of an open approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think I'm pretty sure you say it during it. I mean, a lot of this is also an acknowledgement that people play for different reasons Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. like one of the, I, my personally, I think me personally, I think one of the best things that DM can do is just listen to their table, oh, and yeah. and like I felt I think that's what you agree with too, uh, and everything. So um, you can't just say this is how you play, right. or how you should run your game. Right. Yeah, I think that's the surefire, and 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 you know, so I I probably just by writing style alone fail this many times, and there are times where I get a lot of criticism, and I'm like, whoa, you know. I'm surprised you even listen to me, you know, that like I'll, I'll write things and I'll write it, I'll write it in a declarative way when I'm experimenting, you know? Right. So, uh, you know, one of the most interesting ones I wrote was I, I wrote a DM tip one time that I said, you know, don't, don't bother writing down every idea you have because, you know, if they're really good, they'll come back to you. And <laughs> boy, the criticism I got, you know, from really, you know, I mean, Kevin Culp like yelled at me, <laughs> you know, and, and, and he was like, that's, that's a terrible idea. You, you know, you should you carry your notebook and write it. And I'm like, well, I don't even follow my own advice. Like I have a notebook and a pen and I write down everything. So, but it was kind of like, well, let's try this out, you know, like this. And actually that idea was, a, and I, that's something I'd heard from Stephen King. He says, you know, I don't bother writing everything down because if it's good, it'll come back. It might be two years, but it'll come back. And, yeah. you know, so it was an experiment, you know, everything's an experiment. Well, and I feel like around the time when uh, you wrote this, there was a thing going, and I don't know if this has always happened in the community, because I only came out part of it around 2009 or so, but there was a lot of experimentation that was going across games, like uh, using world building from Fate, uh, from um, Dresden Files Fate mm -hmm. version into your D&D &D game, and like, how can we mix and match things? That was felt, uh, given the reaction from some people, like maybe this was a new thing that was going on. 
Yeah, I don't know yeah. what it was about fourth edition, but it really seemed to inspire that kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. And and I right. I mean, when you think about when you when you asked before about whether it's still relevant, what's what's interesting to me is I, I I'm pretty sure I haven't like checked all the dates about when things have been released, but I don't think like Fate Core wasn't out yet. And that's when I really got to learn about Fate was when Fate Core came out. Um, and 13th Age wasn't out yet. And Dungeon World wasn't out yet. And these games, you know, in, in the case of like Dungeon World and 13th Age, a lot of the ideas of you can't even start to prep your game because you don't know what the hell the icon rolls are going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a new concept. Um, and luckily supports some, some of the ideas that I had written about. Um, I certainly would not put any sort of causation in there. I think it's all, I think we all started thinking about that sort of thing around the same time. I think you're right. Like what, what was it about maybe, maybe it was something going on between the 4E and Pathfinder split where everything was so heavy. Um, and the games were so refined with so much, you know, kind of mechanics built in that there was this sort of explosion of creativity to say, you know, we can do this a totally different way. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's uh it's definitely, I saw a lot of, my gaming friends that were moving away from things that were crunchier, that were more statistically based models, kind of like, you know, role master, those very, very heavy type of games to things that were more, more thematically, more story based, almost kind of like not going completely towards the philosophical exercise, like what you'd see with maybe a Robin Law's hero quest, but, but more where it, the narrative drives it and the dice rolls are almost an afterthought kind of thing. Hmm. yeah i think i think there's definitely part of that is i think we a lot of us grew up and now we're busy yes (laughs) no one has time for role master anymore like ah exactly i can't i can't do all that dnd cpas (laughs) yeah so you mentioned earlier that sometimes you don't follow your own advice uh what is there in this book you know because this is an advice book right so there's a lot of advice there uh what do you not actually do yourself that you advise that people do Oh, that's a tough one. Do you do the note card thing and all that yeah, still? Yeah, definitely. I don't write it on note cards. I have a Moleskin notebook that I write everything in because uh-huh. I'm also a nerd for like preserving my history and I like <laughs> to be able to go back and see what ideas I had 10 years ago. Um, but I still like, you know, I did it yesterday. I had a game. I had a game yesterday evening and I sat down and said, okay, where's the game going to start? You know, what's the first scene and, and what are the, you know, what are the major, um, you know, what are the major beats of the game and okay, who are the main NPCs, you know, that they, they might interact with. And it worked out. It was, you know, worked out for me in the game I ran yesterday anyway. Um, there's one thing I would love to add. There's one, there's one sort of trick that I've picked up and now I do it all the time. Um, I think I've mentioned it on other, you know, other like behind the DM screen and other thing like that. And I have a lot of articles on Sly Flourish about it, uh, which is the idea of this, this concept of like secrets or clues. Um, which to me is like a super easy way to, 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 to kind of build out a world that is uh, directly accessible by PCs, you know, directly accessible by the, the players, requires very little work, but really helps you flesh out, uh, you know, flesh a place out. Mm-hmm. And that's the idea of like, okay, what are the 10 things that the PCs could learn in the next game? You know, and they're like tweet sized things, you know, like so, you know, turns out that Provost, you know, the Provost is actually you know, this character's father, hmm. you know, or, uh, it, you know, I'm playing eyes of the stone thief now. Um, you know, the, 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 you know, one of the eyes is actually inside the stone thief, you know? Hmm. So it's all these like, small clues. Um, but I find that immensely helpful in, mm-hmm. 
kind of deciding how things are going to go with the game. And if I ever get stuck during a game and I don't have anything interesting to do, I could just pull out one of those clues and drop it anywhere. Right. You know, it could be a, a guy's dying breath or some weird ass stuff they found on a wall or anything. Yeah, no, and that's uh, I I read some uh, back in the physical Dungeon and Dragon magazine days. Uh, Dragon had an article, a uh, regular series called Dungeon Craft, and one of my favorite pieces of advice ever that still sticks with me to this day is that everything, everybody, and everything has a secret. Yeah, yeah, you know. And so when you're just making up an NPC shopkeeper on the fly, what's their secret? Are they mm-hmm. secretly in love with the 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 barkeep down the street, or you know that kind of stuff? So right, and right. It, not only does it flesh out the world, but then if you need to, yeah, if you're stuck and you need to throw something out, bam, there you go. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a good one. Yeah, and it's so it's so sort of easy to say like, okay, how does this matter to the PCs? How does this matter to the player? You know, like you can kind of look through them and go, wow, no one's going to care about these secrets. You know, but how they will care if it turns out that one of the characters' father has been in the Stone Thief for. 10 years yeah sure you know like now so you you it really and it's, i and i think yeah sorry go ahead i was saying sometimes it does they don't it doesn't have to matter right but it it, it helps you flesh that's, out the world that's true. In, right. in your own head so that you're right. more authentic yeah and it beats the hell out of like 10 pages of backstory right you know like it might just be an interesting thing they see on a wall in a in a, in a you know in a mosaic that's you know somebody put there a thousand years earlier but now we're turning into a behind the DM screen and giving yeah that. right <laughs> that, well, that gets back to i really i really wish and i think if i ever Certainly, if I do a revision, that would be a big thing that I would add. Mm-hmm. Is it's just a really great way to kind of get your hands around mm-hmm. what what might go on in your next game that isn't in there. Very good, um, Tracy. Do you have any more questions? I think I've asked everything I wanted to ask. I think I asked everything too. Very good. Uh, uh, any, anything else? Questions? What's that? I, I want to ask some questions okay. to Colby. So, like, we actually the first time we talked was about five minutes before this podcast. <laughs> yes. Um. You know, I, I'd like to know more about what the process is actually like to make one of these audiobooks. Sure. Like uh, how, how long does it, you know, for the, for, the, for the amount of time that the book is actually, that the book actually takes up, how much time goes in behind it? About three to four times what the final running length is, is what you can figure what your production time is going to be. So if you have an eight hour audiobook, you can figure anywhere from 24, you know, to 32 hours of production time. So you have the initial recording, and then, of course, I, mean, I don't know if you've ever like sat down and started to read out loud, but every time you've done that and like you listen and you hear, you know, if you stumble on a word, you have to stop, you have to go back, you have to say that phrase again. You know, if you pronounce someone's name wrong, for example, let's say you didn't look it up ahead of time and you thought it was, you know, Griner, Greener, which one is it? Oh, dear God. <laughs> you did mispronounce it the first of the four times my name came up, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> you got it right the other three times. That's going to hurt the review. Yeah. <laughs> Those are Hall of Fame numbers, though, right? Seven, seven, <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, you know, um, there's there's all of those small things that go into it. And then I also try to do different takes of different things. And if there's characters involved, it becomes even more complicated because many times you might have an author who, you know, they'll drop in a minor character in chapter two, but they won't bring him back until like chapter 25. And you went, how the heck did I do that character voice again? You have to go back, look it up, you know, and it, there's, just, there's a lot to it. Um, plus, when I go back through and edit things, I try to take out all of those uh, rapid inhales of breath, like a <gasps> kind of thing, because otherwise it sounds like you're 
in the middle of an obscene phone call with Darth Vader and no one wants that, you know? So you have to take those things out. Um, other production things are you put filters on it to make the voice have a certain resonance or if you want it to sound like a certain time period. Um, I had a, a book that I did that was a mystery set in Colorado in the 80s and I did everything on a, on a different type of microphone and did the filtering in a different way to make it sound like an older style of recording. Hmm. So there's all of those considerations to put in there too. Yeah, I, I gained a new appreciation for, for readers recently because while also listening to this, I was listening to uh, Aaron Evans' latest book, uh, Ashes of the Tyrant, and there is so much draconic in there. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that that reader like nails the pronunciation of every single one of those words every single time is really impressive to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm currently listening to the first book, uh, in that series. Oh, the Brimstone Angels? Brimstone Angels on Audible. Mm-hmm. Really good reader. Who's the narrator on that? Dina Perlman. Oh, nice. Okay. And we're, we're recording about that uh, next week on Thursday. So. <laughs> Very cool. Colby, what was your, what was your least far- favorite part about recording the Lazy Dungeon Master? Oh, geez. What, what yeah. part were you like, oh, God. <laughs> well... Rattling off the statistics is is never as <laughs> you know as fun. How come as you didn't read out the entire uh, bibliography? Sort of <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the bibliography. That's right. yes, yes. This including very well the, referenced bibliography in there. Yeah, reading the websites colon forward slash. <laughs> yeah, that was a little painful when he gave the the URL for the the PDF or whatever. Yeah, killmenow.com. Yeah. Oh, and then, yeah, because <laughs> it's that weird have- Amazon. Yeah, what's yeah, that? Right. Giant, giant Amazon URLs. Yeah. I should have done some like yeah. SharePoint, Microsoft SharePoint URLs. Oh, yeah, um, those are not much fun. <laughs> and I think you and I had a conversation about what to do with all the random lists because I had, you know, the Lazy Dungeon Master. I, I tried to put some actual tools in the book that might be useful for people when they're actually running their game. And oh, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah you were absolutely. like, you know, how useless it's going to be for me to read a one to twenty list of, you know, potential <laughs> idol idols. And oh, believe yeah. it, believe it. I mean, I can make that list as interesting as possible, but I still don't think it's going to quite. Yeah, it's know, not going to help anybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, I rolled fifteen one again. Yeah. Sorry. So yeah, yeah, and then so we put together a um, on the if you if you go to Audible, you can actually download just those charts uh, as a separate PDF. Mm. So people who pick up the audiobook can also can also get access to those charts. Yeah, I haven't figured out how to if you can access it through the Audible app or not, or, or if you have to go to the website. I think you have to go to the website and yeah, get it as a PDF. It looks that way. I I'm, I know. Yeah. I'm in the app right now looking at it, but... Yeah, yeah. Audible should change that. That would be useful. Yeah, I think... Uh, yeah, I don't know how it works. So, Colby, I know on this one you approached uh, Mike, but do you, are you open for people approaching you as well? You know, at this point, I've got... Um, a front load right now of about 10 titles that I need to get done between now and November, 2017. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they're on all kinds of, uh, popular culture, uh, subjects. For example, I'm doing two on the TV show Serenity. I'm doing one on seven seasons of Buffy. I'm doing one on the Gilmore girls. Um, and then there's some other fiction pieces that are kind of woven in there as well. And it's, I, I wish I were, um, you know, if I find that one project that absolutely sings, it's it's possible. But for the most part, I'm 
I'm really booked up between now and plus I've got um, several different, you know, cons and stuff that I want to try to get to, to, to network with some other folks too. So you got a lot going on. Yeah. I, feel, I, now I really feel lucky. <laughs> I got to squeeze in there. Yeah. I've uh, presented a couple of times at uh, Denver comic con on uh, audiobooks for geeks. And I'll, I'm going to be applying to uh, do that at San Diego comic con uh, oh, wow. the next month or so. Um, yeah, I've been to San Diego Comic-Con a couple of times. That's actually where I managed to contact Leah Wilson, who was a key to getting Batman Unauthorized, which is a, a selection of scholarly essays on, on The Dark Knight, which was really, really fun to do. And I met her at uh, San Diego Comic-Con, and I said, hey, we should do an audiobook together. So, Sweet. Yeah. So, Jeff, are you... Did I hear in one of the previous episodes that you're a middle school teacher? I am a middle school teacher. What subject? Social studies. Nice, nice. I taught uh, five years of middle school theater and then seven years of high school theater. Very good. Yeah, yeah. We I'm in a gifted and talented school, so the arts program is is a big part of what we do in the, uh, the theater and all that. So. Yeah. Do you ever have the kids wanting you to to jam for them? <laughs> I. Uh, Inevitably, they always figure out that, about my hobbies uh, <laughs> because the podcast is out there. So that, that, you know, right. eventually, some kid decides to Google their teachers' names. Um, and every now and then, and by every now and then, I mean twice in my career now, I've been um, roped into sponsoring an after-school gaming club. And this year is one of those two times. So uh, every Friday, I'm playing with twelve-year-olds. That's excellent. Awesome. How got, is that? I've got um, one group that we're playing uh, Titans Grave. And one group that we're doing uh, Freeport, the original Freeport trilogy. Oh, wow. That's so, cool. It's going pretty well. I mean, if anything, I ended up with way more people than I knew what to do with. Um, we, we, had, we ended up having to figure out how to do four tables where I'm the only person in there that has experience running games. And one kid had played it a few times and said, well, I, I, can, I can DM if you need me to. So, so we had to split to like an every other week schedule and it took us like two months to make characters, but they were having a blast. And then they came back from winter break and like a third of their kids are like, I got D&D stuff for Christmas. Woo! <laughs> like, so, I'm like, all you've done is make characters, but okay, I'm glad you like it. So. I, I, I remember that stage though, when, uh-huh. you know, right when you get the books and you roll up every conceivable type of character and just, you know. The one time when you get that that eighteen, and it's like, oh yes, this is this is going to be the one. Yeah, so, and yeah. and Fantasy Age uh, with the Titans Grave group is going really well, like because it's so easy to pick up. We made characters in one session, whereas for D anD D, it took us you know months. Um, so I mean that's just, that's a really good game for introducing kids to role playing too. Nice. So now we're t- everybody's interviewing each other now, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so Mike. Yeah. One last question for you. Sure. This was the project a couple years ago. What's coming next? Where, where, when am I going to get my next uh, D&D self-help book from Mike Shea? Uh, a D&D self-help book? I don't know. That's been your uh, shtick, right? Well, I don't know. DM tips, epic level play, lazy dungeon master. It's, it's your DM, sure. uh, your DM I, self-help I, book I, trilogy. I, I, would, you count as, as, would you count Fantastic Locations as Well, a I don't know. Tell me about it. well thanks for asking um i so one of one of the big kind of studies that i've been doing in my own gameplay is trying to figure out what parts of the game are easy to to improvise 
and what parts are a real pain in the ass. And to me, and, and also I've been, you know, for years been looking at the published adventure and saying like, what is it about these that I don't really like? Like something about them just, you know, I, I play them all the time and I'm, I'm playing two of them now. And there's always something about them that I'm like, oh, you know, they're just not quite the way I want them. And, and my, again, my hypothesis is that the, if, if you separate out your story and your monsters and your NPCs and your current stuff from the places that they take, that they, that they exist in, um, you can kind of add that stuff afterwards. So instead of a book of adventures, I said, what about a book of just places? Interesting places with lots of cool details and read aloud text so you don't have to spend a lot of time ahead of time, you know, trying to figure out what this place actually is. Uh, some interesting things that PCs might interact with, uh, but, and, and, some, and some story, some background story about why it is the way it is or what they might find there. Um, but flexible enough that as a DM, you can throw your own monsters, your own stories, your own ideas, your own plot hooks, everything else on top of this place. Uh, and that, that was the premise behind um, uh, Sly Flourish's Fantastic Locations. Uh, and I had no idea if anybody would care. Um, you know, I thought it was a really good idea. I talked to people and they thought it was a good idea. And, and I said, well, you know, and I wrote a lot of it. Um, and then said, well, let me do a Kickstarter and, and see, you know, see if people care. Like, you know, I really want to make this good. It's, it requires a lot of art. It requires a lot of good art to, to really make it a great, a great product. You know, more so than la like Lazy Dungeon Master has a fantastic cover. Um, but, you know, I don't really need a lot of internal artwork for it because mu much of it is just description. Uh, but when you're talking about a place, you need a good, you need a really good evocative picture. Um, and so I said, let me throw it up on Kickstarter. And I put it on Kickstarter and I set the, I set the goals to, to where it would be commercially viable. And then I set some stretch goals and, and you know, kind of said, okay, this is where, you know, this is about as much as I think I could do and about as much money as I would need uh, to be able to do that. And the Kickstarter ended up doubling that amount. Uh, so it turns out people are at least interested in the idea. Uh, so now we're deep into it. I just finished the, uh, the last rough draft of the last chapter of the book. Uh, a lot of it is already in editing. Um, Brian Patterson, who's doing all the art, uh, is uh, 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 deep into the artwork, and we are, we are moving along. So our goal is for uh, the summer. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have it out in the summer. Not too bad. Not too bad. Yep. So people and, for, should, and people should look at slyflourish.com for all of your advice, all of your books, and including that one when it launches, yes? Yeah, absolutely. There you go. And they should hear more about you over on uh, Behind the DM Screen, recorded monthly. Yep. With you, me, and Sam Dillon, our illustrious editor. Colby, where can people find more about you? Uh, they can find me at lastwordaudio.com, which is uh, my production company. Um, also, if they just want to type in my name, Colby Elliott, into Audible, they'll find all kinds of really great titles and some classic science fiction, some nonfiction, all kinds of good stuff. Very good. I will make sure to do that at some point and see what you've done. Well, if, Thanks you, if you guys have nothing else to, to share, I've got nothing else for you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for doing this. And this is the end of the episode. I want to thank all of our guests today, including Mike Shea and Colby Elliott. But I also want to thank our, our co-reviewers here. Uh, Susan J. Morris, where can people find you on the internet? SusanJMorris.com or at SusanJMorris on Twitter. Very good. Uh, Ryan Costello Jr., where should people find you to hunt you down? NoDirectionPodcast.com. That's K-N-O-W Direction. Like the Druid Spell. Like the Druid Spell. Wow. <laughs> That's a great name. 
like the druid spell? No. <laughs> no direction for a podcast. Oh, yes. Thank you. About Pathfinder. I believe you and I worked on that together, yes? Coming up yes, with that? Yes, Tomes yeah. helped launch No Direction. That's right. I, try, I like to take credit for your greatness as often as I can. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And Allison Rossi, where should people look for you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at charm underscore underscore person. Charm double underscore underscore the double underscore, huh? Yeah, because the one the one underscore was already taken and no underscore was taken and hyphen was already taken. So I was like, <laughs> no, just go with the double underscore. Why not? Very good, very good. Uh, and I also want to thank all of our listeners for supporting the show by shopping over at our affiliate links on Amazon and D and D Classics. Although technically, it's all DMs Guild now. D and D Classics just forwards on to DMs Guild, but it's all the same thing, and we all get the same affiliate uh, bonus from that, I guess. So, if you want to get a hold of us, you can email me at thetomeshow at gmail.com or call the biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And that is episode 261, where we figured out how to do more with less. In this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome. I'm on the wall.